AI, artificial intelligence. It's the plot line for generations of sci-fi thrillers and blockbuster movies, replete with jaw-dropping special effects and visions of dystopian futures where things rarely end well for the humans. Then along came the movie Her in 2013, a sci-fi romantic comedy where the lead character falls in love with Samantha, a hyper-intelligent computer operating system with accelerated learning capabilities, personified in a Siri-like female voice. Romance blossoms, our love of gadgets taken to absurd new heights. Of course, in reality, our day-to-day encounters with artificial intelligence are far more mundane. In fact, they may even go unnoticed. But many believe that AI holds the promise to improve our lives in ways large and small. Icons of tech and science communities, including Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking, and Elon Musk, warn that with that promise comes peril. Seize the promise. Avoid the peril. Therein lies the challenge for business leaders. Today, we'll hear from Professor William Kerr about his case entitled "Vodafone: Managing Advanced Technologies and Artificial Intelligence." I'm your host Brian Kenny, and you're listening to Cold Call. So we are all sitting there in the classroom. The professor walks in, and, and they look up, and you know it's coming. Oh, the dreaded cold call. Bill Kerr's research centers on how companies and economies explore new opportunities and generate growth. His forthcoming book, titled "The Gift of Global Talent: How Migration Shapes Business, Economy, and Society," explores the global race for talent and how countries and businesses compete for high-skilled immigrants. He's also the co-director of Harvard Business School's Managing the Future of Work project, which explores the unprecedented set of challenges and opportunities presented to business leaders today, including aging workforces, growing skills gaps, shifting labor markets, and, of course, rapid technological change, which is exactly what we're going to talk about today. Bill, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I thought this was a really interesting case, and、uh, you know, consumers I think don't even realize all the ways that artificial intelligence is already impacting their lives. And this case really brought it home for me as I as I learned about what Vodafone was doing. So I think people will really enjoy it. Maybe you could start just by setting up the case for us. Who's、sure. the protagonist? What's on his mind? The case is set in January 2018. It is a gray day in London.、Mm-hmm. The central protagonist in the case is Vittorio Colau, the CEO of Vodafone. But I think of the case more as a conversation with Colau and also members of his top management team about advanced technology and artificial intelligence and where they are. Unlike your、um, introduction、yeah. and, and kind of the romance that may come with AI, their questions、uh, were, were much more mundane. Kind of like, are, are we going at the right speed? Have we figured out, you know, the right strategy for the future? Where is all this taking us, and, and are we prepared? Unlike a number of cases where there's that famous trigger event, you know, the the person that walks in the room or the call from the customer, there's no trigger event in this case. It's really in the midst of this rapid change, as you described. Yeah. Their assessment of are we on the right pace, the right track, and what do we need to do for the future? Yeah, and hopefully there's sort of a proxy of how many other organizations are starting to think about this. I mentioned that you're the co-leader of the Managing the Future of Work project here. You know, I would imagine your motivation for writing this case ties back to that course. Absolutely. Uh, one for one connects、uh, to that.、Uh, Managing the future of work has been a project we set up over the last two years、uh, at the school to both think about technology and demographic trends.
trends and how they're reshaping the workplace. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of conversation about the future of work. And I think we all get the emails that come in about the scary or the very promising futures of work that we may hold. What we're trying to do at the school is have a place that, that deliberately inserts the word managing in front of it. So managing the future of work. How are leading companies and leading policymakers thinking about how to shape this future and the role of their company in that. Mm -hmm. So this case uh, came to us uh, through the European Research Center that, that HBS has. They understood we were looking for cases about sort of top leading companies and how they were approaching the technological future. Vodafone came up as an opportunity. We then had a, a one-hour conversation uh, with Vittorio on the phone uh, in, the, in the fall of, uh, of last year. And what came spilling out in that conversation was, in many respects, just a, a, the big prelude to the case. It sounds like they really opened up, too, because the case has a lot of detail yeah. in it. So why don't we dig into it a little bit? There were some things that you uh, right up front talk about that were sort of occupying Vittorio's mind, uh, things yeah. that he was, he was thinking about. Can you sort of walk through those for us? Sure. The case throughout has, at the core, three different levels of conversation that are going on or thought. One of these is, is just very operational. Like, what, what are we, when we install a chatbot, what is the impact that it's having on our business? What, you know, how many employees does this sort of replace? I'm going to slow you down. What's a chatbot? So right. just, so, just so our listeners yeah, know. Yeah, so this is, would be a customer service request. You come online, rather than speaking directly to an employee, you're talking to first a machine that's trying to handle some of your questions. Uh, and then if it gets very frustrated, we hand you over to a, a customer service agent later. Uh, and we're going to, as we'll describe later on, they have internal uh, operations that they're doing with, uh, with, with things like this. Yeah. So one level is just very, operational uh, from the HR department over to customer service to network ops, like what are the things that they're doing uh, and how can they make sure that they're getting the most of these opportunities? Mm -hmm. Then there's kind of the, a next level up, which is a, like a leadership management level. And it's Vittorio and his team thinking about the way we used to manage this company is different than what's required for today. In the past, marketing was a function that was largely driven off of instinct or people's accumulated experience over time, and now data plays a much more central role. So they have to think about how they change the, the functions and the operations and how they adapt to this environment. And then kind of the highest level of all this goes back to your early uh, kind of introduction about dystopian concerns and similar, which is where is all this going and what's going to be the impact for society? And if you're a company of Vodafone size, you're clearly thinking about the broader societal implications and how you need to be playing an, an important and active role in shaping that future. Yeah. So how big is Vodafone? They're a European-based company. Yeah. Uh, where do they sit in the landscape of the yeah. telecom space? So Vodafone uh, is headquartered in London. Uh, they have operations in uh, about 30 countries. It's a little bit less than that, but uh, but the exact number, I think, uh, is hard sometimes for me to perfectly pin down, somewhere between 25 and 30 countries. They have over 100,000 employees across these organizations. They are um, one of the, the top five in terms of size mobile providers in the world. Many people that listen to this podcast will be a Vodafone customer mm -hmm. because there's about 500 million of them in the world. Like all telecom operators, they're, of course, not just in the mobile space, but they're moving into uh, converged applications for consumers, Internet of Things, enterprise operations, and similar. Yeah. One of the distinguishing things that, that quickly sort of bubbles up in the case about Vodafone's operations is that each of these countries has 
uh, autonomy to the things that they're doing. One of the starting points for Vittorio's sort of management style is he said, I banned the word global inside Vodafone. And he said, what instead, we are an international company, but we want to respect how each country has its unique heritage, its unique regulations, and be, uh, not think of this as, as just being we are providing the same service in 28 different countries, but instead we are providing the localized service uh, as appropriate. Yeah, and I was, uh, you know, there was some great statistics in there about the global telecom market, you know, uh, just the appetite for data these days and the way that whole industry has changed. Yeah. And Vodafone is trying to, you know, stay on the leading edge of that. And it's a hard leading edge to stay on. I actually began my career in the 1990s in the telecom space. Mm-hmm. Back then, there was often a monopoly or duopoly. Things moved rather slowly. Uh, There was some technological change, but it wasn't something that really would necessarily keep a CEO up uh, late at night. Fast forward over the last couple of decades, and there's very rapid technological shifts. Uh, You have lots of deregulation in the market has allowed for more competition. You have people coming in from the side, like a Skype or even a FaceTime. It's a space that you have to be able to move very quickly in order to be, um, be a part of it. And so what are some of the key areas that are affecting the digital transformation? I've, you know, I've had yep. the, the good fortune to be in parts of the world like India where, you know, it seems like they've sort of skipped a step. They went right over landlines into digital and everybody seems to have a mobile phone in their hand. Yeah, that's been uh, in many emerging countries and developing countries a big skip uh, that we used to have the the fixed line operators. That was uh, often a, a very slow process for extending service, both due to the technological advantages of wireless for reaching many people easily mm-hmm. and also due to the fact that we allowed more competition to be in that wireless space. There's been that leapfrogging that you described. As you think about this broader digital transformation, there's a bunch of different ways one can slice this up. So you can think of it in terms of data analysis, moving into automation or robotic process automation, so RPA, the kind of chatbots and things that we talked about before, or go out to that exotic of artificial intelligence. Or another way you can kind of think about the the transformation companies have to go through is they, at some level, again, they're thinking about how does this affect my just day-to-day operations, but also what new risks am I exposed to? Or who could come in and just disrupt me from the outside uh, in a digital format? And throughout the case, you actually hear this conversation at at a number of points where Vittorio, even though he has 100,000 employees, at one point says, gosh, I stay up late at night sometimes worrying about could a 100-person startup company with the right software running it over my lines and my sort of uh, infrastructure just displace the things that I'm doing? So at times when you think about digital transformation, it's hard to pin down exactly where in this landscape you're talking about. You you need to make sure that you're covering all of it and you're being clear what you're pulling up for analysis at at a point in time. And I thought there was a really interesting story that you share about Vittorio, partly because he's the CEO of this enormous company, but he does his own market analysis by going into the local points of sale. And he has some interesting discovery when he does that at the store that he normally goes into. Can you? Sure. Uh, He's a storyteller. And a lot of the insights that have propelled him forward in his thinking have come through his own experiences. So the one you're describing is that he had a a European city, capital city, that he frequently visited, and he always loved to go by the premier placed 
uh, Vodafone shop, interact with customers, yeah. see how people are picking up the packages. Yeah, that's great. Obviously being in close touch with the customers. And so he goes uh, one Saturday morning and the, the shop doors are closed. And so he calls the country manager. And he says, you know, it's, it's Saturday. Why, why are the shop doors closed? And the country manager says, uh, basically, it's not just Saturday. They're closed every day. <laughs> and then what Victoria sort of learns from that is that they had done some data crunching and some analysis, and they'd realized that uh, they were much better off in terms of connecting with customers and servicing customers by having less visible but uh, more operations out in suburban locations or off of the main streets than having this sort of premier flagship property. And there's been a number of cases where Victoria's very self-reflective of saying, you know, I thought blockchain was not going to be significant for us. And then I, here's the conversation that really changed my thinking ab- about this. That, along with other uh, ways that they're trying to understand about the world, helps them push the company forward in advanced technology. So that gets right to the topic that you uh, talk about in the case about how they manage innovation. They've got some pretty interesting ways mm-hmm. that they go about managing innovation across this enormous organization. Yeah. And l- let me set the case in a little bit of context here. Clearly, if you're a telecom provider and a, a Vodafone size, you have a technology roadmap for a five-year horizon that's going to include a thousand different things. Uh, everything from what's the next generation of cell phone towers over to the types of things that we're talking about, which is how they put some of these new automated and advanced technologies into the organization. But much of the conversation sits around uh, some of the tools that they utilize, especially with their multi-country setting. How can they use themselves as a, as a vehicle for challenging themselves, getting in front of stuff? So one example is that they have a, a strategy they call Crawl, uh, Walk, Run, mm-hmm. where they are always in one country starting with a new technology, trying to learn about it. Then they would move to a more limited deployment across three or four, and then they try to take it out to the 25, 28 countries globally. So it's a, it's a step-by-step process where they're understanding before they try to take it large scale. Likewise, at many points, you see them testing things on themselves. So they begin their bot development process first with their internal IT help desk. So a way for them to learn about what's going to frustrate the heck out of people and how can we do it on ourselves before we actually put this in front of our our real live customers encounter that. And I think a part of the other interesting thing at a broad scale, you get a sense of them at some level protecting the technologies from the company. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, you know, you read these stories in the press about all the amazing things that artificial intelligence or advanced technology can do. But oftentimes when they're first rolled out, they have negative net promoter scores. So people are not that excited about it. And one of the things they highlight is that the easiest thing if we don't want to do a technology is to roll it out in the company very fast and then just have people get angry as heck about it. And then that's the end of the technology. So they have to figure out how to phase it in in a way that uh, they are both learning and also that the organization as a whole is adopting it and building upon it. Yeah. And net promoter score, the NPS that you referenced, that's how they kind of gauge customer satisfaction across all their service offerings. Exactly. Yeah. This episode of Cold Call is brought to you by Indeed. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever, and that means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost the visibility of your job post at Indeed.com slash cold call. That's Indeed.com slash cold call. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. 
So uh, tell me about Amelia and Toby, because I think those are great, yeah. you know, concrete examples that people can understand about how they're thinking about artificial intelligence. Yeah. So uh, Amelia was the internal IT uh, help desk uh, bot that they that, that's how they sort of first began this uh, process as a way for them to try to handle as many internal requests as they could. And Vodafone, like many large multi-country settings, has a shared services division that would be answering a lot of these requests. Mm-hmm. Uh, Toby is the one that came out that's more of their customer-facing operation. So this is when you go online uh, and you sort of pull up the, I need help on this, you start talking with somebody is going to be Toby and it's not going to be a customer service agent at at the front. And as of January 2018, about 70% of all customer requests were being handled uh, via Toby. And so Toby is not a person on the other end who's responding. It's a yeah, Toby is not. And that's a, that was a, an important question that they had to think through was, do we want it to be obvious to the customer that you're talking to a computer? Or do we want it to be kind of a little fuzzy or a, lo- a little vague? And, and companies have taken different uh, routes here. In their case, it's very clear that Toby is a computer that you're talking with. Mm-hmm. And then they have various escalating or sentiments as they, as they get a sense that you are frustrated. Uh, it kicks you over People to- People swear a, at Toby, you know, yeah, it's time it, to move them along. It, Exactly. Ideally, they're going to even get an early signal or two. Uh, but people will kick it over to the customer service agent. And throughout, they keep a, a constant stream of the conversation and what, what has happened here, both for continuity at the handover, but also because that's how they learned. And it's how they can sort of train Toby to do better next time with this type of request or to learn better how to handle this range of things that customers are looking at. But really, the heart of it goes into you have to train these programs. It's not that there is a, um, a single list of actions. You go one, two, three, four, and you're done. In some settings, there are those types of lists, and those things are the ones that are automated first. But the more difficult ones and the ones that move upstream is when you're interacting with customers or there's a whole range of things or there's questions that people just don't even know. Uh, One of the early examples that they gave was uh, uh, the, the phrase that my phone is dead. Yeah, uh, and then they would re- refer that to the bereavement department. You know, like like, <laughs> like they, they they but they had to sort of like pick up on lingo as to how to you know route the things in the right way or understand yeah. the context in which people are talking and, and sentiment and all those exactly other- exactly. So when you go to your your first question of how do I attract in young digital talent when I'm automating. That's actually, you know, something that young digital talent are probably looking for. Like they, they want to have the ability to work with very advanced technologies. And just because you're automating something doesn't mean that uh, there's not an important role for a person to play in this process. In fact, we often think of it as, as you, you have to sort of move your, your personal game or the way you, you, you lead up to a higher level. So you used to have that uh, marketing or, um, you know, would, would be sort of crunching some data. Now – it's probably likely that the machine is going to crunch that data better than you, but you're going to have to understand which data you should be putting into the machine and understand the overall risk patterns that that data is producing. Those are tasks that young digital people are going to find exciting and want to be a part of. Now they have to make sure that they can compete against the Apples and the Googles of the world for the talent. Like, uh, so, right. But, but it's, not, it's not one where there's a fear that, oh, they're going to automate all the work in London. Uh, in fact, they're probably going to be more even reshoring some of those job opportunities uh, because the technology requires 
uh, such digital talent. And then, you know, we, this is the age-old question for companies all around the world, bring in digital talent. How do you do that effectively? Of course, there's a lot of the workplace environment, uh, making it an exciting place to operate, power and autonomy uh, that people feel in their work, being able to see the impact on the results, you know, on the products that they are creating. A lot of those types of things would be common to many companies as they're competing for this workforce. Mm-hmm. You uh, mentioned early on sort of the three levels, and we've talked about the first two as they thought about you know moving down this path. How have they thought about that third level of society and the implications for what they're doing? I believe that uh, they were remarkably open and helpful in this uh, case development process to describe it. And one place that they did not shy away from is talking at times about the economics of some of the stuff they're doing. They're very clear at times that with uh, a number of the bots that they roll out, it usually takes the place of three employees, mm-hmm. uh, and they provide the cost structure of, say, $6,000 a year, uh, 6,000 euros a year to, to run the, the bot effectively and so forth. Uh, and there is some question about, well, what if it's not three jobs anymore? What if it's 3,000 jobs? You yeah. know? But they, they kind of then package this up, and what are the many things we need to consider? First off, we have to move extremely fast and be competitive in this market because what matters in the end for customers are prices. Mm -hmm. And this is a way for us to be ever more productive with our workforce. And the overall size of Vodafone may grow to the degree that we can do this. So to date, even though there's places where they have shed some employment around some of these advanced technologies, the company hasn't shrunk in its overall size. Uh, Its its employment base has, has grown. But then you come to some of the more difficult questions of, well, we look out and, and that's going to have some important implications for our operations in various countries. Even if Vodafone as a whole stays, in, you know, it, that our employment is increasing, it could be that we're reducing employment in some markets or in some operations. Mm-hmm. And that could have an important local effect, a destabilized local effect. And they want to make sure that they're thoughtful and respectful as they roll out these types of, uh, of, of improvements and technologies that they don't disrupt the, uh, the landscape in the countries that yeah. they operate. Yeah. At some level, that is just being a good citizen. It's also uh, when you are a company of Vodafone size, you're directly interacting with the president of most countries that they are working in. Right. And there's going to be expectations about – you know, what are you doing uh, around these operations or what's going to be the roadmap of the future for Vodafone in this place? That's a conversation that they need to uh, to manage. If you look at uh, – it, it reminds me a little bit of the, the change that we had to go through when assembly lines became a very common thing and, you know, automation happening in assembly lines that was changing the nature of jobs that people had. But the industry adjusts over time. Yes. And much of the the case is about how the leadership team is trying to educate themselves and also the workforce to make these adjustments happen. And then in places where they know that it's going to be different, how should they prepare for that opportunity? Mm -hmm. You've had the opportunity to discuss this uh, in the MBA class. Uh, Yes. I'm just curious, how do they respond, the sort of, you know, the the emerging leaders of the future? Yeah. uh, For them, the case really resonates in part because this is what a lot of them are going to face. Uh, organizations like Vodafone built up, you know, 40, 50 years of history, legacy systems, customer bases, and their expectations and so forth. And you can't just jump to whatever the latest technology is overnight. You have to build the the workforce that can handle that. You have to manage your existing IT spend in order to get there. You have to manage capital markets. So they need to understand and walk through how does this process unfold. And if you're put in a leadership position like Vittorio or the other people that we talked through in the case, what's the step that you need to go through to make this happen? 
Yeah. Great insights and great things for our students to be thinking about and managers everywhere. Bill, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Cold Call, you should check out our other podcasts. After Hours features Harvard Business School faculty dishing on the latest happenings at the crossroads of business and culture. Managing the Future of Work features experts discussing how to survive and thrive in the age of artificial intelligence and learning machines. Subscribe to these and others on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you've been listening to Cold Call, an official podcast of Harvard Business School.